The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are gathered here before you in this place. As we sang, confident that we are safe in your presence because of what you have done to make peace with us, your people. Thank you for that. So we come to you praying, confident that you hear, confident that you welcome us, and asking you to then do a work of, of cleansing, of refining. Of, of growing and encouraging. If your word's like that, it does many different things with the different ones of us when we are in different places. The same phrases that come to some with great encouragement come to others with great conviction. And you temper and taper your word so that it does what's just right with each one. So we come to you confident that we are safe and that we can then risk the request, work on us and change us. Encourage and comfort and convict and change. We're your people and we want to be made like you. And so we pray you do that now with your word. Send your spirit here to have his way in this room with us. And Father, perhaps there are some here who don't know you. Would you do a good work in their lives also? Call them in and make them completely new. We can say, we can be so bold as to say, would you put to death the old and bring to life something totally new? Would you save and would you sanctify, would you make a church that is honoring to you and that is full of delight in you? Do that this morning in, in this passage in, in the Gospel of Luke. Help us understand what's here, to think it through well, to apply it, and to find life in it. God, please do that by your Spirit. If there are things that need to be cleared away, distractions or has prayed already certain perhaps dispositions or certain positions of sin that we stand in would you clear those away and would you remove all barriers and help us to hear to sit before you confident in your caring work on us so build the church this morning i pray lord build each individual here and honor the name of jesus he's the king he reigns and unlike many kings, he, he reigns for the good of the people and for the glory of his name. So make that happen this morning. Lift up the name of Jesus and be good to his people, please. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 16. 
where once again we find Jesus being scrutinized and criticized by the religious leaders. As we saw last week, Jesus had been speaking to his disciples about how disciples should live, particularly in relation to wealth. Once a person becomes a Christian, becomes a disciple, he or she will want to know how to live in a way that pleases the Lord and helps others to know him also. And so Jesus addresses that with regards to how we use our money, our resources, our possessions, our, our wealth. Mammon is the word that he uses. And he gets to that topic first through the parable about the prudent manager who wasn't a good guy and Jesus doesn't say he was. He's, he's not. But what Jesus is emphasizing, what he points out is that while he's not a good guy, he is certainly shrewd and forward thinking. He's prudent. Careful to think about how he's going to use what he, what he has in his hands at the moment, what he temporarily has access to, can, can use, so as to gain for himself some good in the future, to protect himself, to provide for himself, to, to care for himself, in his case, to, to get himself a job. So he's thinking, how do I use what I have for the future? And Jesus says, prudent disciples will likewise think about how to use what they have now, temporarily, so as to provide for themselves blessing in the future. And if you think about that, particularly, we realize then we should be generous with what we have for the sake of making kingdom friends. Jesus taught that. In every way, using what we've been given, really what we've been loaned, that was the, Im the impact of the last several verses of the passage. We have all that we have on loan from God, and we're going to have to give an account for it. So to use what we have been loaned in all sorts of ways to commend this generous God and his gospel of grace. To commend him and his gospel to other people who, seeing us giving testimony with word and with life to his generous grace as we use what we have from him generously and graciously, will commend him to them and try to then, with that, win other people to this generous God. And as we do that, we're storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. The true riches that he alludes to in verse 11. We're using what we have now for the sake of future. Eternal reward given to us to enjoy, principally, greater connection to and enjoyment of this God. So Jesus is talking about, as we love this God and don't love money, as we look to this God to be our, our provision and our caretaker and not money, what we get is, in fact, this God as good generous caretaker blesser lover of our souls what money can never be he's urging that upon us teaching his disciples all that last week and the religious leaders the pharisees though he wasn't talking to them they heard it maybe they overheard it maybe it was reported to them but in one way or another they they hear about it all that he's saying there and they reject it harshly which leads to another kind of confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. That's what we're going to look at this morning, verses 14 to 18. I'm going to read it all. It is all one uh, complicated, connected train of thought. If, if you look at it, as you, as you listen to it, you're going to say, how does that relate? A couple of different points. How, how does that fit in here? It, do, it does fit in, in in a complicated way, I think, which we'll, we'll work on. I'm going to read it all and then draw two observations from it. Here's where I begin reading in verse 14. Pharisees 
who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Luke 16. Two observations, and here's the first one, from the first part of the passage especially. Beware the tendency to make self the hidden but functional authority over life. Beware the tendency to make self the hidden but functional. In other words, the, the true, the, the actual acting authority. Hidden but real. This is a, a common state to us. It's very subtle sometimes. It's a subtle form of pride. It's common and it's harmful to us and dangerous for us. And that's what we see going on here with the Pharisees. We begin here, verse 14. They heard all these things, what Jesus has been saying about being generous with wealth, or if you want to sum it up in verse 13, when he presents this, this either or, you cannot serve God and mammon, that, that word for wealth. Either you love one and hate the other, or vice versa. You cannot serve them both. They heard this, verse 13 is a good summary, and they ridiculed him. It's a strong language. They strongly mocked. They heaped scorn on him. Why? Because, we're told, we don't have to think it through, we're told, because they loved money. They are on one side of verse 13's either or. They love money, and they hear Jesus pressing against and pressing against and pressing against, and so they lash back at the other side of the either or, Jesus. But, but think about this carefully. What are the, what's going on when they're mocking? It says they mock him. They heap scorn on him. They are not attacking the surface language of this discussion. No Pharisee, no, most people, but certainly no Pharisee, is ever going to say, let alone try to argue, yes, I love money instead of God, and you should too. Never. They're, they're never going to, on the surface, say, no, we should not be generous. We should be stingy and make money all about the service of me. And we should never use our money to serve the kingdom of God. They're never going to say that. In fact, as, as Jesus points out in the text, quite the opposite. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. They are ones, this is, this is the, whole, the whole way of life for the Pharisee. They go out of their way to make a great big deal out of showing just how much they are about God of showing just how much they pray, just how much they fast, of making very clear, hey, everybody, watch me give alms to the poor. Of trying to make clear to everybody else, look how good, look how righteous, look how in tune with God, look how in service to God I am. But God knows their hearts. 
and knows where the ridicule comes from. They're ridiculing him from love of money, but not quite on the surface. What, what actually are they going to be ridiculing here? Not love God, not money. They're going to ridicule the extremity of it all, the radicalness of it all, the completeness of it all. His hard line, absolute views. Use all that you have. None of it belongs to you. It's only loaned to you. Hardliner, radical. You should be generous, and of course that means not generous out of your abundance, but generous out of sacrifice. Nut job. Doesn't he know that God gives us wealth to, to experience God's goodness and to enjoy? And then he tells us to give it all away. What kind of a crazy is this guy? That's what, that's what they're going to ridicule. And they're not ridiculing to ask a question from the side. It might be, we might have a question about, well, how do we deal with, when God provides abundance for us, there is goodness to be enjoyed there. And how do we work all that through to enjoy what God gives and yet to give it all away sacrificially? How does that work? That's a question that they don't care about. Because, truth be told, in their hearts, they love the money, not God. They're not interested in sorting that out. We might be. We, we've talked about it other times. But they are, in fact, ridiculing the extreme position that he repeatedly strikes. All of you, all on the table, including everything that you have, only been loaned to you, and you're going to answer for how you use it all. What an extremist. What a radical. They love the money. That's why they ridicule him. So here's what they've resolved. And notice, this, this is important to kind of trace out all this thought because this is the point that's going to apply to us. This is the point that's, that's common and that's troubling. From issue to issue, maybe about money in this case, or about divorce later, verse 18, any issue, here at this point, it's about money, Notice the train of thought. I will act like I value God's word. And I want to follow it. That will gain me approval. Maybe even acclaim in public. And I'll tell myself and show everyone else I'm righteous. Look how good I am. But when God's instruction comes into conflict with my own values, my true values, my real loves, well, then I'll do what I want. I'll, I'll go my way because I know best. I know, I know what I want. I know what I enjoy. I know what seems reasonable to me, myself, self. And that's what really rules life. That's the mindset of the Pharisee here. This is where Jesus gets whitewashed tomb. On the outside, it all looks clean and good and pure and righteous and holy. And on the inside, it's just death. On the outside, it, it looks like it's all very much, very deliberately about God. But on the inside, it's very much, very deliberately about self. It's exalted all in the eyes of the people all around, but in the sight of God on the inside, it is an abomination. The word he uses in verse 15, which is a really strong word. A strong word 
most commonly used for atrocious sins. Something that is highly offensive to God. Deviant sexual sins. Idolatry of the worst sorts. For Jesus to say this here in this context is, is pretty remarkable. God sees what's going on in, in this mindset of I will act like one thing on the outside. I, I know what, it's the calculated hypocrisy that's the problem here. I know what God says and I will act in accord with that because it is conveniently self-serving. But on the inside, when push comes to shove, I know what I really want and I'll do that. It is so hypocritical, it is so calculated so self-servingly convenient. The God of the Bible is useful only to serve the real God of self. And they have figured out how to, in a very calculated way, pull all the correct religious levers so as to gain advantage, and in this case, prosperity. It's calculated idolatry, and it's all done to line up one's life with what one's heart really loves. In this case, it's money. But for other things, at other times, other people, other situations, it could be anything. And here's the conceptual connection to verse 18's divorce. You read it through, probably as I read it, I'll give you a little bit of warning, but if you come to verse 18, you kind of say, where does that come from? What, what's that about? Well, the conceptual connection, I think, Follow this through. He talks about money. The Pharisees reject that. He confronts them. He's going to say some more things, which we'll look at in the second point, and then comes back to touch on another issue in another area of life that is very similar. Money, a common area where people love something and therefore decide to go with themselves as the authority. Marriage, relationships, divorce a common area of life where people love something and therefore decide to go with themselves as the authority. Jesus just brings it up quite bluntly. If anyone, he says, read it again, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Divorce leads to remarriage, and that's adultery, which everybody then would know under the law is punishable by stoning, period, end of discussion. No easing into it, no qualifiers, no exceptions, just the naked truth from the mouth of the king. And it would not have been any more palatable then than it is now. In his day, in his audience, there would have been very wide disagreement, even amongst the Pharisees themselves, about what made for permissible divorce. Some people, even some Pharisees, had very wide, very loose parameters. And others had more narrow ones, more limiting ones. But the point then, as now, right here, the point is that the discussion always goes and I bet in some of our minds is right now even going to, well, 
come on, when are you going to talk about the, the, the permissible grounds? Surely divorce is permissible. It must be, maybe in a pleading way or maybe in a demanding way. It, it has to be. It is. I mean, do you have any idea what it's like to be married to somebody like this? Come on. Or, or, or more painfully, come on, come on. Oh, uh, under this, under this, under this, under this, under this. There's got to be a way to get out of this, doesn't there? And it moves on immediately to, to what, what, are the, what are the grounds for there has to be a way to get out of this. But here's this fundamentalist nut job, this absolutist, who, who's, a, who's a radical, who's an extremist, who's crazy, who just says it leads to adultery and that's a death penalty. Moving on. You can't say that, can you? What kind of crazy... find there is self rising up. Self's rising up and pronouncing verdict on the word of Jesus. Looking for, expecting, yea, maybe even demanding to be a way to legitimately say, this vow I made, I unmake it. I swore before God and a person, and now not so much. That has to be right, doesn't it? Now, for the record, let me be clear. I do believe, and the church does teach, this church teaches, I believe this church teaches, that in another context, Jesus did teach one single permissible ground for divorce. Just one. A Christian is permitted, not required, permitted to pursue a divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality. And Paul taught in another place one other single permissible ground for divorce. A Christian is permitted to receive, not pursue, receive a divorce from a non-Christian spouse who doesn't want to be married to a Christian. And these two grounds do render a remarriage afterwards permissible and therefore not to be adultery. Those exceptions do exist in the Scripture. I want to be clear about that. Only those two, but they are there. I need to be clear about that, and I want to be clear about something else, too, that I'm trying to present this with, with some heat, with some force, with some emphasis, because of how it often feels in our hearts. You, if you were to talk to me personally, you would not find any condemnation from me coming at you because of the divorce that you had in the past, and you realize... That was outside the bounds. Hmm. Steve's going to be condemning of me? Is the church going to be condemning of me? No. So, hear that. But these are the two grounds the Bible does allow, one of them from Jesus himself, but here's the point. It's not here. 
Not in this passage. Because this passage is not really intended to teach about divorce. What I just said there, I needed to say because we need to kind of hear all that together. But that's not the point of this passage. It's not here. This is not, about a, this is not a passage about divorce. This is divorce as an illustration. An illustration of something that happens in our hearts as we hear from Jesus something that we find completely unreasonable. We do this to it. Whether it's divorce or whether it's money, or, or pick it. Pick the issue. The common way the human heart works is to hear something from God, and as long as it kind of lines up with, as long as it works with what, what's really functioning in here, the functional ruler of us, self, as long as it works with that, we're all good. We, we agree. We, we walk with it. We, we align with it. We're okay. It's when it does this, and it crosses us. That's when we realize something about ourselves. competing gods here competing rulers here sometimes and this is not the most common way but sometimes it's just like the Pharisee here and, and maybe that's somebody here in the room maybe you consider this is, it, is this you are you kind of gaming this system the Pharisee knows what he's doing which is why Jesus calls it an abomination. Maybe that's here, but probably not for most of us. Probably for most of us, we need to kind of think about this. This is how oftentimes Jesus' remarks to the Pharisees come to us kind of as a, a note in kind. Not the same degree, but the same kind of note. Do you find yourself do you notice, or as I put it, beware, are you aware of the common tendency in you to make self the hidden but true ruler? Do you see it? It's important that you see it. It's important that you look for it, that you notice it, because nobody arrives at, at the end of open rebellion as step one. We, we move that direction. And we move that direction by bit by bit by bit by bit by bit setting up and then responding to an alternative authority. Well, that seems reasonable. That seems right. I, that, that seems okay. I should follow along with that. When Jesus says, that can't be, no. A lifetime of that is what leads us to more extreme, more, more open rebellion. So we need to notice this be beware of it and be aware of it in its, in its most subtle forms functioning in our lives. And not only because it's, it's a matter of right or wrong, it's also because it's a matter of life. When we set up self, when we follow after, as the Pharisees do, follow after the love of money, when we, when we follow after, give allegiance to something else, we are putting our, our self as deciding to stand on and put trust in a failing God. As he says, Jesus says above, 
this fails you. Mammon fails you. Relationships fail you. It all fails you. The only one who can rule and rule wisely for our good is the Lord himself. So there's a right and a wrong issue. There's also a life and a death issue here. So we get to notice, be, to be aware of, where do I find myself subtly, unexpectedly, hiddenly set up as the functional ruler of my life? The functional guide, the functional instructor. Well, how might you, how might you notice that? Where might you look? Well, with, any, with anything subtle, it's hard to be... Hard to be simple and clear. I find that I follow my emotions. That points out self. I look at where I get, pick all the emotions, where I get angry, where I get particularly delighted, where I get melancholy, where I get frustrated, where I get anxious. I, I, I look at those things in my life and then I ask, why is that? Where's that coming from? And sometimes the answer is because self actually has another love. Because self is being driven by something, being controlled by something and either greatly satisfied, which is why you're delighted, or greatly frustrated, which is why you're angry. Or called into question, which is why you're anxious. So I'm looking for, we pay you to look for, where does self subtly and in a hidden way function as, as the actual authority in my life? And maybe you find that by, by following the emotions. There may be other ways. That's, that's the one that appears most useful to me. Be sensitive to, be ready to check yourself and your loves against the true authority. When you find yourself growing irritated or stiff-necked or angry or disappointed or depressed, ask why. Ask why. Ask, ask what in that moment is in control. Or maybe you want to flip it around and you say, here I face a difficulty. Here I face a great trouble. That is, that is threatening to me. Am I in this moment able to rejoice always? And again, I say rejoice. Here's a, here a great challenge, a great threat, a very painful situation. Am I able to give thanks in all circumstances? For this is his will for me in Christ. Am I able to count it joy? I'm flipping it around now. Follow those things. Ask yourself... About, I, I think the emotions are, are a clue here. There may be other ways. That's what, this is what works for me. To help me be aware and to beware when self is the one actually steering me and I'm, and I'm giving way to it and wandering off into fear, wandering off into anxiety rather than being controlled by another truth. The truth that would enable me to know the peace that passes understanding, the truth that would enable me to rejoice even in the midst of this. But I'm talking about another truth, an, another reality, another ruler. I'm moving towards the second point. But the first one is to beware, to, to look at yourself 
maybe openly gaming the system like the Pharisee, but probably not. But Christians, because we still have the flesh, it is common for us to listen to, to have another authority calling us away. Notice that. Take that thought captive and do what with it? Submit it to Christ, the true ruler, which is the second point. The second observation. There is one true authority over life the king with his law. There's one true authority over life, the king with his law. Jesus takes one step away from the directness of the confrontation here. He's, he's kind of talking to particular people about them, and he takes a step kind of away from that as he moves to talk about big picture sweep of redemptive history. So it, it has implication for the particulars, but it's kind of a step back to look at the big, 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 big picture. Verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were until John. What does he mean by that? The law and the prophets, what we, we would call the Old Testament, Old Testament built on the law of Moses, and the prophets kind of elaborate on it and, and, and proclaim it and preach it and, and call people back to it. The Old Testament was in force until the ministry of John the Baptist. We saw this, like, for instance, back in chapter 7. John's the last one of the old era, and he kind of hands the baton to Jesus as he says, this is the one. So this law and the prophets was in effect. It was describing, commanding righteousness and holiness in the people, prescribing sacrifices that dealt with sin. So it's, it's, it's the system that, that governs life. This is what life is supposed to be like for you, says the law and the prophets, and this is what you do when it isn't the sacrifices. And all the while, in that showing, this, this is actually good but insufficient. Because this never actually gets changed in you, and the sacrifices have to keep being offered, and none of them are permanent, so it's pointing us forward to a time when the system would change and something new and better would come. The kingdom of God would come. And then John the Baptist says, that time is now. And since John, middle of verse 16, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So there's a change. Jesus the king arrives, preaches and teaches, models, miraculously displays. Look. You can say, you can say look at me, look, look around. The kingdom of God is here right here in your midst. And you'll say things like, I mean, you can look at the sky and predict the weather, right? You can see the signs. Well, shouldn't you be able to look around and see the signs? Look, the, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the poor have the good news preached to them. I, I'm the one. I'm the king. And he proclaims the good news of the kingdom, and everyone forces his way into it, into the kingdom, that is. Or as your footnote says, you surely have a, a footnote it reflects the, the grammar difficulty. This is, a, this is a difficult little phrase here. I think the footnote's probably better. But either way, the, the point's not far off. The footnote, everyone is forcefully urged into it. The urging is forceful rather than the entry. 
The kingdom is being proclaimed by Jesus, forcefully so, which we've seen again and again and again as he says, hurry, press your way towards the narrow door before it closes and it's too late. Essentially, what this is trying to say, what this verse is trying to say, and what Jesus has been pressing on us is that there, there is a time, it's as if we are, we have been for centuries as if we're moving down a highway, picture yourself moving down a highway, heavy traffic, and you know you're, you're waiting for an upcoming exit. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And so you're gradually doing what? As you know, an exit's coming and there's heavy traffic. You're gradually moving over, moving over to the right. Slowly, slowly, slowly. One instance, years and years ago in Chicago, heavy traffic, six lanes. I know the exit's coming up. I'm moving over. You know, you got to kind of move over, move over. And then comes a sign, exit left, 500 feet. <laughs> what? And everybody in the car says, exit left. And somebody glances back. <laughs> cut across six lanes of traffic and slam on the brakes on the exit ramp. Because if we miss this exit, it's going to be a year before we get back here. <laughs> There's one exit. Everybody in the car says, get over left! Quick! Forcefully urging me towards the exit. And then you turn and head there quickly. Forcing your way over. Or you're driving the city. You just go. That's what Jesus is getting at here. There was a way, there was a way, and that way isn't anymore. This is the way. And you can't say, I'll look for another way. You can't say, I. I, I, I'll go with what I like. You can't even say, I'll go with the Old Testament, never mind Jesus, because the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, are all pointing up to and all leading to. They are all setting the table for this one, and you cannot say, I'll take that and not what that's about. There's a kingdom and, and a king who has come, and he is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and this is the way it is. There's, there's only a single ruler. He has the right and the authority. So he has, he has both the, the rightful authority and the power to reign over life. So what, what this calls us all to is to say, he is the one to whom I must turn and behind whom I must heal. That's That's it. Listen to him and obey him and submit to him. He is the king. This is the nature of the confrontation that this passage is bringing up. And it's the nature of the confrontation that's all through the Gospel of Luke. Jesus shows and says, I am the Lord. Period. Which, if put just like that, is, I think, is, is kind of a, kind of, kind of a, 
of a clashing of two, two perspectives here. The human one and God's. And if that's all that it was, that would be enough. Because he's God. He's God. He can say, I, I tell you, here's what you're supposed to do with your money. He can say, I tell you, love your enemies. He can say, I, I tell you. How much have we seen that phrase? I tell you, repent or perish. I tell you, come through the narrow door. I tell you, divorce leads to remarriage, leads to adultery. I tell you, he could put it like that. He's God. And he does put it like that a fair bit. I tell you has been a common theme. He is the Lord. And the word of the king reigns. But what's remarkable, <laughs> what's remarkable, if you think about that, there, there is a, a very humbling, very breaking, very, I find it like a confrontational losing sort of setup there. Because we, we cannot stand beneath that. He's God. But what's remarkable is that having already established that, him being God, him being really personally clear on that, he goes beyond that and proclaims the good news of the kingdom. What is that? He could just proclaim the kingdom. Line up and give an answer. Right? That could be. But he proclaims the good news of the kingdom. Which is remarkable. <laughs> so we got to think about that a little bit. He proclaims the good news of the kingdom and does so with the law still standing. So that's the next verse. We might, we might read only verse 16 and think, well, we've got this transition that happened, and the law came along, pointed Jesus, and the law, I guess, maybe did it shrivel up and die and go away, and now we've got the king? No, we've got the king with the law. Verse, verse 17 says the law's not going away, not even one little dot of it's going to perish. He's the king, reigning in authority over life with his law, to proclaim good news. The good news of the kingdom. What happens here? What happens here is the law with its requirement, the law with its commandments and description of righteousness and holiness is not set aside but is actually carried forward, answered, 
and completed in you. What I mean by answered. Here's the law that stands over you. That stands over you and condemns. And actually it's the law juiced up because Jesus actually says even wider the requirements of the law. You've, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. Well, I tell you, if you get angry at your brother, you've committed murder. He widens it. He, he widens the commandments of the law. He brings them forward and they stand over you. And then he says, that's what's required of you. I'll answer it for you. This is the good news of the kingdom. He preaches what the law and the prophets required and then answers it for you in your falling short. This is good news. This is the, the heart of what Jesus' cross mission is about. What Jesus' cross work is about is not to set aside the law and say, never mind, but to say, actually, I mind very much. And you have failed. And in love, I will fill it up for you. I will answer it for you. I will answer it on your behalf because I love you. I will, I will call down the law, call down the law and its requirements, and I will answer it for you and set you free. That is good news. That's the good news of the kingdom. That there's a kingdom being proclaimed by Jesus in which the law's requirements are actually met. Justice is done by the king against himself, not against you. And then, here's more. And then he doesn't say, now never mind if that ever actually happens in your life. No, then he says, those, the law, the requirements of God, what it looks like to be holy, what it looks like to be righteous, holy is right acting and right behaving and right attitude towards God. Righteousness, right acting, right behaving, right attitude towards people. I still require all that. And I, by not just my cross ministry, but my, my Holy Spirit ministry inside of you, I will make the law come to life in you. I will write the requirements of God on your heart and move you to follow them. The law does not go away. The law is carried forward, answered, and then filled up in you by him. So you do not remain the same. You are not bound to be the same old, same old. This is the good news of the king. He does not just say, here's the requirement, answer for it. I'll answer it for you. He does not say, never mind the requirements. No, here's the requirements, and I'll change you to line up with them. Which is life for you. Which is life for you. Do you realize that's life for you? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbors yourself. Life for you. And you can't do it. So he says, come here. Come here. I'll help. I'll move you to follow my decrees. I'll put my spirit in you. I will come to dwell in you. Change your mind and change your heart. Do you want that? Change your mind and change your heart so that you see things. You see me. You see people. You see my goodness like it actually is. And you're moved to follow. Transformed. To submit to the rule of the king is not just to knuckle under. 
okay, that's what I'll do, and I'll try harder to do it. That's failure. It's burdensome, and it's failure. To submit to the rule of the king is to say, your rule is right, and I need your authority over me. I need you to reign over me, and I need you to reign in a way that not just commands, but also enables So God, here, help. I have been prone to wander. I have been prone to follow after self. And I repent of that. I turn and I press towards. It's hard, but I press towards the kingdom and ask you to reign in me and over me to make me different. Please, that's to submit to the reign of the king. It is amazing. found a new way where I get end of sermon cues here. (laughs) (laughs) Who signed up for next week? (laughs) It is, do you see a good thing here? Do you see a, a good thing, a good king, a good ruler? who does not say, "Eh, have have your way. Your way would be comfortable. Your way would be easy. Yeah. But your way would be death. Your way would not actually lead you to where you think it does. It fails you. I will reign over you, and I will satisfy the demands of the law by answering its penalty And by pressing in the reality of it, the change of it, I will make you new. You will turn to me and ask me to reign. (laughs) There's a good king who wants to rule over you. Turn to him and trust him. Hear him. You're on some spectrum probably. On one end, you're not a Christian. You've never trusted him before. And on the other end, you're a Christian and, and frankly, really, really, really deeply grieved by the disobedience you see in your life. And you're everywhere along the spectrum. And the answer always is, the answer always is, repent. Turn to him. And say, Lord, will you reign over me, please? Here. Here's me, reign over me. Would you forgive me of my sin? And will you work in me to make me new? He's come to give life and to work for you for your life. So trust this king with his law, the only true authority over life. Let me pray. Father, thanks for your goodness. Thank you that you did not come to rule over us and this time to rule over us with a rod of iron. You came to rule over us with with good news. You proclaim a gospel that is not about what we are to do, 
but about what you have done to answer the requirements and to fill them up in us. Your law is good. So press it into us, please, by your spirit. Make us here who are yours. Make us increasingly close followers. Increasingly more, more consistent trusters. And perhaps there are some here, Lord, that don't know you. Would you show them goodness in your reign and futility in following the God of self? Call us after you. Build your church. Honor your son. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.